Okay, Song of Solomon 6-4 through 8-4. The title is called A Love Checkup. So we're all sinners. We're all broken people. And if marriage consists of two sinners, it shouldn't be a shock that there are many broken marriages. We see this in the church, and certainly we see this outside of the church. But what if there was a way to fix that? What if there was a way to prevent broken marriages? If this brokenness can happen in your marriage, it can also happen with your relationship with Jesus. But that doesn't need to be your story. Our text tonight, Song of Solomon 6, 4 through 8, 4, speaks to this very topic. As we have read our text tonight, you may have noticed similarities in the descriptions and the metaphors from texts we've previously taught from. There's even some exact yeah. metaphors and some exact <laughs> descriptions. Tonight we read of the man speaking to his love. He calls her his dove, his bride, but he is speaking to her, about her. Our last text that Sue taught in 5, 2 through 6, 3 was the reverse. The woman was talking about him, her beloved. She had turned her beloved away when he came and she regretted it. 5, 2 says her soul failed her. And so she starts looking for him and she's frantic and in this stage of regret, she's trying to make things right in her head, and she's rehearsing to herself who he is to her, um, her desire for him, his physical beauty. Then the poetry leads them to um, intimately uniting. But here in our text, 6-4 through 8-4, it's the man who is the talker. He is reciting the love poem. He has the love song for her. The description is for his woman. There are some exact repetitions of description that we mm -hmm. saw from chapter four, the first seven verses. Yeah. And yet there's some differences here. Here the couple is together. They're not separated. There's no problems like there was in the last text where she had regret. There's harmony here. They're together and he is declaring his love for her. And he focuses on her physical beauty and her uniqueness and how no one compares to her. So tonight our theme for this text I'd like to convince you that the text is telling us that love is kindled by contemplating the beauty of your beloved. Love is kindled by contemplating the beauty of your beloved. We see this in two sections. Um, the first section is 6.4 through 6.13, and he is describing her unique beauty, and it motivates his desire. So I'm going to read... Um, the first verse, verse four. You are beautiful as Tirza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. He starts with the metaphor praising her beauty. She's compared to two famous cities, Tirza and Jerusalem. Both cities are known for their beauty. In fact, if you go into the Old Testament, um, Jerusalem's beauty is talked about in Jeremiah 6.2 and in Lamentations 2.15. There was not a city anywhere at any time like Jerusalem. It's known for its beauty and it stands apart. Now, the very name Tirza means pleasing. Also, both cities are known for having strong defenses. Look at what the author continues to say. Um, awesome as an army with banners. So to compare her beauty to fortified cities implies that her beauty is just awe-inspiring. Think about seeing a fortified city with its troops lined up with their banners. It's a spectacular sight. 
He's saying she is awesome. She is spectacular. She is lovely. So lovely that in verse 5, he says, turn your eyes away from me for they overwhelm me. He isn't embarrassed by her, so he wants her to turn away from his presence. Oh, no, no, no. He's overwhelmed. That's what the text says. Her eyes so excite him so much that he can hardly stand to keep it together. He isn't ashamed of her. No, he is so affected by her beauty that he can hardly keep it together when she is near. Everything about her sweeps him away. Then he continues in the rest of verse 5 through verse 7 with metaphors we've read before concerning her hair, her teeth, her cheeks. We read of these back in chapter 4 when the groom was describing his bride with a focus on her perfection. I don't know if you remember that, but 4.7 says, there is no flaw in you. All these descriptions of her beauty and his desire um, that he's had has not, hasn't changed. His desire for her hasn't diminished. He is the constant character in the story who's never changed. He's never had a problem. If there's been any issues, if you think about it, she's the one who was anxious. Mm -hmm. She was the one worried about herself. She regretted. She's the one who has been changing through the book. The groom has never changed. His devotion to her, his description of her beauty, his desire for her has always been there. That's what's cool about seeing the repetitions of him describing her, or the metaphors are still the same. She is still as desirable as ever before. But then in verses 8 through 9, he says something new we haven't seen. The man regards his beloved as better than all women. He says, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. He exclaimed exclaims the incredible uniqueness of her. Well, we may naturally wonder if these queens and concubines refer to Solomon's legendary harem, but these are rounded numbers, the 60 and 80. Um, these rounded numbers are used for comparison, similar to what wisdom literature does. It's used for exaggeration for a point of emphasis. In the fashion of wisdom literature, wisdom literature, the man leads on what we know of Solomon and his women. He uses that as comparison to proclaim, to proclaim that however many women of whatever status there may be, his beloved is still by far the best. A deliberate comparison with Solomon's penchant for women as opposed to the beloved's exclusive devotion for her. Among all these women, this woman who he he claims is so unique. Um, other women may be 60, 80, or countless in number, but his companion, his dove, his perfect one, is the only one. He continues by saying she is unique to her mother. He even highlights her uniqueness more by pointing out that all of the women extol and praise her. Then in verse 10, he describes her uniqueness more and her beauty with celestial language. She is as awesome as the sun, as beautiful as the moon, the two great heavenly lights, the sun and the moon. She is out of this world. The military language, again, awesome as an army with ba banners, is like personification indicating that his woman is awesome in beauty and, aw and he is awestruck by her. 
Love is kindled by contemplating the beauty of your beloved. The groom is kindling his love for her. He's describing her unique beauty, and this motivates his desire for her. He is recounting what she is to him. His love for her and how she is unique, no one can compare. His recounting leads to his desire for her. We see his desire for her in verses 11 through 13. Verse 11 says, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. The author paints a setting of springtime with the blossoms and the vines budding. And springtime is a time of love. And then verse 12 says, Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. Now, the ESV doesn't do the best translation here. But actually, the Hebrew, if you go to like the New American Standard and the Christian Standard Bible, is that it? Um, They have a, they say it this way. Um, Instead of chariots of my kinsman, a prince, it says chariots of willing people. And this is to signify that there are other men that see her beauty. In this springtime garden setting, the man is, oh, but yeah, the man is surprised. Before he realized what was happening, his desire was similar to other men who desired her. In verse 13, the other men want her to come back so they can look upon her. They say, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that you may look upon us. Now, Shulamite is either an area or what she's called, but it's referring to the bride right here. I mean, even in our teaching, I think my mom refers to the beloved as the Shulamite. But these other men who have looked upon her beauty are asking her to turn around so they can continue looking at her. Um, They want her to remain. But rather rather than leaving her to answer them, the man, her groom, speaks for his bride. He says, why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies and the rest of verse 13? Now, scholars and commentators, they're in agreement that none of them know what the, the dance means. They don't know if it's cultural, if it has to do with something, a war dance. They have no idea. But what we do know is whatever this dance is, it's something that would have onlookers. It's something that people would look at, something that would have spectators. So we can see that the groom is telling them not to stare at her as if she were a show. Love is kindled by contemplating the beauty of your beloved. Now, in this first section where he describes her beauty and, it, and, it, and her uniqueness and it motivates his desire, you have to understand we are, what we can learn from this is we are whole people. We are not just driven by impulses. We have minds, we have bodies, we have souls. And if we want to fight for our marriages, for our love, it actually starts in the mind. You have to have a mindset to fight for it. If you're late, if you're lazy, your marriage will and relationship will reflect that there's been no work put into it. And honestly, it starts with the mind. You need to purpose to think about your spouse in the way the groom is doing here. When you recount your spouse's uniqueness, their strengths, their gifts, all the things that made you notice them and fall in love with them in the first place, this challenges your mind to think on good things and those good things will stir up good desires that you will have for them likewise to kindle your relationship with the lord starts with the mind Mm -hmm. 
doing acts of service and engaging with God's people is good, but if you're if your intent and your mindset isn't to be honoring to God, then it doesn't mean anything. But meditating on Christ's uniqueness is good. Because think about it. How is Christ unique? He's like no other God out there, right? All the other gods have stayed dead. Our God raised from the dead. Our God defeats death. And he doesn't just defeat death. He gives life. Our God is control of all things. He is unique and no one compares to him. You want to keep your relationship strong with the Lord? Set your mind on things about him. And I'm going to read some verses that are so familiar to you. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. It's that whole whatever you put in that's good, well, output is good. All you do is hang around and listen to trashy stuff, well, your life's going to reflect that, right? There's a little bit of common sense here, too. Philippians 4, 8, 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Just as contemplating the beauty of the bride arouses in the man an overwhelming desire for her, so too contemplating the beauty of Christ causes you to desire to be with him, to be close to him, to experience the intimacy of relationship. Love is kindled by contemplating the beauty of your beloved. So in the first part of our text, the groom's song highlighted the bride's uniqueness and how she stands out above all others. Here in the second part of our text, the groom highlights her physical beauty, her desirability. Love is kindled by contemplating the beauty of your beloved. And in our second part of, the, of our um, text, 7, 1 through 8, 4, we see describing her desirability reciprocates her desire for him. He finds her most desirable. He begins his next poetic song with the women's, woman's feet and takes in her whole body as his song continues up to the crown of her head. This is similar to the poem the bride had describing the groom back in 5.10 through 16. The description here is very intimate, leaving the audience in no doubt that the pair know each other's bodies intimately from head to toe. Now, I'm not going to impact every image because some of these we've already talked about before, but see how he desires her beauty. Um, in 7.1, he is simply saying, he says, How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. He's simply saying that her thighs are beautiful and perfectly shaped. When he says um, in the end of verse 2, your, your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies, he envisions her slim waist. Can you picture wheat gathered and tied together? and the curvature it creates, she's an hourglass figure, and this describes the bottom half of the hourglass. In verse 5, when he says, your head crowns you like Carmel, well, he means that her head is like Mount Carmel, the mountain range that sits above the plains and juts out into the Mediterranean Sea. It's a striking thing. It's very beautiful. Then he repeats how beautiful she is as we read verse 6. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O oh, loved one, with all your delights. 
The word delight can be used as a verb or a noun. As a verb, it occurs 10 times, as a noun five times in the Hebrew Bible. It can be both used as a theological sense, like delight in God, and in a human sense of enjoyment, including how we see it here, sexual enjoyment. So verse 6 is like a summary statement of what he's just declared about her. She is altogether lovely, one who brings with her delights that he wants to partake in. We see this in, act, in his action language in the rest of the verse of his song um, through uh, verses 7 through 9a. He talks about climbing her and slend her slender frame pictured as palm trees, taking hold of her breasts, which are fruit clusters, being so close as to taste her breath and kiss her mouth. He declared how she feels, uh, he, he feels about her, and now she's responding to it. The bride's attention has been engaged by his fine speech. She is no longer a dancer observed, but a lover aroused. The rest of our text is the bride's response to her beloved's words about her. Immediately after the man expressed his wish to taste her wine, she responds with fervent hope that he will indeed enjoy it. Look at 9b. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. She reciprocates the beloved's language. The woman explicitly takes the lead in these verses, echoing the beloved's earlier invitation to go into the countryside. She's willing to, she willingly gives herself over to him in his desire for her. In the next context of their mutual love for each other, look at verse 10. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. All right, so I'm going to pull a Janet Day and make you flip back to chapter 2, verse... 16. 2.16, we have this refrain of my beloved and this mine interchange. This is the first one of the text. There's three in our, in our book. Sorry, not of the text, of this book. 2.16 says, my beloved is mine and I am his. So she says this after she sees him coming down the mountain as a stag. Do you remember us teaching on this? This is her response for his desire for her. He's coming for her, he desires her, and she's responding with, my beloved is mine and I am his. Now go to 6.3. This is what Sue just taught on. I mean, it's literally the verse right before our text tonight. It says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. So right before our text tonight, where the response that the bride has saying these words, she says it after her poem about him. She's responding to her meditation of him. And now in our text, 7.10, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Here is her response after his poem of his desire for her. She invites him in verses 11 through 13 to go with her into the fertile regions of the countryside so they may consummate their love. Remember, that's where his own desire for her was kindled back in 6.11. She affectionately gives herself to him we see at the end of verse 12, where she says, there I will give you my love. She references the sweet smell of their home in verse 13 and how she had stored up treasure or how she had stored up or treasured everything near and dear to her for him. She gives him everything. As we venture into, into chapter eight, um, and it's the end of her response to her groom, the bride wishes that her man could be her brother. 
Now this is strange to our ears. There's no desire for incest here. The man had previously on several occasions referred to his beloved as sister back in 4.9, 4.10, 4.12, 5.1 2. Brother or sister were common terms of endearment between lovers in the ancient Near East. It speaks of close relationship. She's wishing that she could be more public about her affection for him because apparently any public displays of affection between a man and a woman, even a husband and wife, were severely censured in Israelite society at this time. One could publicly kiss a close relative, but not your spouse, which seems crazy. Um, so her desire is not to kiss her brother, but she wants everyone to know who her husband is. She is unashamed about her love for him. The bride proceeds with desire to take him to her mother's home for intimacy. This motif of her mother's home we saw back in chapter 3 where it was a place to go for intimacy that was private, a place that was secure and safe. She finishes her poem to him with sensory language about her desire for physical intimacy. And the last line of our poem is directed to the young women, the virgins. We have 8-4. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So this strong request or this adjuration when she says I adjure you we don't talk like that I adjure you um, but that's what it's called an adjuration um, we saw that back in this refrain this is the most famous refrain of the book we saw that back in 2-7 and 3-5 um, this refrain is repeated back in those two um, two verses but there's two differences in our text here in 8-4 firstly Back in those verses, 2, 7, and 3, 5, she talks about the gazelles and the does in the field in the refrain. And here it's deleted. This is a more direct, shortened form of the refrain. And actually the shortened form conveys increased emphasis and gravity. Secondly, although most English translations don't alter the wording from the previous iterations of the adjuration, there's a significant difference in the Hebrew. There's a grammar thing that's different. And if I told you all the technical stuff, you might fall asleep. But basically, the grammar of the verbs are different. And so you really need to read the translation here is, how could you stir up? How could you awaken love until it pleases? And that change of grammar fits that tone of emphasis and gravity. So the tone is very urgent. This is the most common refrain of the book, and this is the woman's final and most serious warning to her audience. Do not stir up love. Do not awaken love in the wrong circumstances and be utterly committed to the right kind of love. Recounting to our spouse what we desire and love about them can cause them to reciprocate their love for us. Here, the woman is reciprocating her love after the man has talked about how much he loves her. Um, there's no guarantee if you declare your desire for your husband, he's going to respond. But I would say there's a really good chance he will. Um, sometimes it's sometimes it's harder for women to talk about that. So to talk about that, you might get a very good response from your husband. Um, do you, do you know the verse James 6, uh, 4, 8? 
draw near to God and he will draw near to you? Well, the spiritual application of the second part of the text is this reciprocation when, when you know of the desire that someone has for you. And you see, we're never far from God. We may feel like we're far from God, but he's always there. He's always near you. He's always near his people. You may feel that way, but he's never far. When you meditate on who he is and how he has desired a relationship from you from the beginning, you know he's not far. He wanted to reconcile you so bad, a sinner, to himself that he did the most unique thing by sending his son to die in place of your sin. We know this famous verse too, John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Romans 5, 8. But God showed his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So to conclude this last part, contemplating on gospel truths, particularly the unique glory of Christ and what he has done for you, motivates Christians to want to join on his mission. Hear his words, pray for him to be close, and empower you to live for him. That is the opposite of a broken relationship with Christ. Love is kindled by contemplating the beauty of your beloved.